0: Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at Delap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor. So be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. Imagine spending your entire life raising your family, developing your kids, watching them launch. Moreover, you've grown your business, accumulated assets, invested wisely, and ultimately stewarded the opportunity incredibly well with the hopes of leaving the next generation with an opportunity that you yourself weren't provided. Wouldn't it be tragic if a lack of planning left your family with a dumpster fire? If rather than transitioning the wealth efficiently to the next generation, it was crushed by estate taxes that didn't need to be paid? And most painfully, what if heirs disagreed with what your true intentions were and rather than loving one another, litigated against one another? This is the unfortunate reality far too often. It's this sad truth that Inspired me to reach out to Mike Hackard, an attorney with 44 years of experience specializing in the area of estate litigation. He's essentially a first responder to bad or poor planning. Mike will share some of the common pillars of great planning and the predictable traps that people often forget to avoid. Mike is an expert in elder abuse and will talk to us about how to protect your family and loved ones from the challenges, and exposures as we age and often experience diminished capacity. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Mike Hackard of Hackard Law. Well, welcome, Mike Hackard. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Jared. Pumped for our conversation today, you bring a wealth of experience, 44 plus years of practicing law. You also bring a lot of marital insights too, 48 years of marriage. So congratulations to you and your bride. Thank you. Three pretty awesome kids, four grandkids, one on the way, eminent, like T plus three days. So maybe by the time we go live with this podcast, you'll be a grandpa one time more over, right?
1: Right. And she'll be a granddaughter.
0: Granddaughter. be fabulous. Yes. Awesome. So today we're going to talk about a variety of different things, but predominantly kind of the focus of Hackard Law and what fills your calendar these days, which is kind of a state and trust litigation or elder abuse, trustee removal issues. I've got three younger siblings, you know, several of them, and one of them is a first responder himself. And so as I was thinking about kind of a paramedic EMT and being a first responder, in many ways, professionally, you're like a first responder. You're the first responder to a bad plan or failed planning. Is that a fair thing, a fair way to kind of position your practice?
1: Yeah, that's a great insight. And it's one that we sometimes reference in meeting with clients that are facing a situation that they think that no one has ever faced before. And I give the example of first responder or an emergency room physician who sees one particular injury three times in one day and a general practitioner might see it once in 10 years. So we do see them. We see the estate plans that fall apart or the estate plans that were never made and all the complications that arise out of that.
0: Mike, I'm kind of interested in how you kind of fell into that space. I presume you didn't really fall into it. It probably isn't where you started your focus from a legal perspective 44 years ago. How did you kind of discover this space and why have you chosen to lean into it the way that you have?
1: Interestingly enough, I did learn about this at 44 years ago or more. I, I was the head of a legal research section at the Superior Court before I went on to private practice. And the first firm that I worked for was a probate practice. And in that practice, no one wanted to do litigation. And I did because I litigating with the court, were, were, it was with judges that knew me and I knew them and I'd worked for them. So I felt very comfortable going to court. So since no one else wanted to do the probate litigation, I did it. And that was quite a long time ago. But I tell clients at times, my first will contest was in 1977, so been around the block before. But then my practice evolved, and ultimately, a good part of my practice was pharmaceutical litigation. But in the back of my mind, I always knew I would get back to what happens with probate litigation or estate litigation, and of course, it's evolved into protection of elders. And it's something I like, and I'm helping people my own generation and as well as their children and sometimes grandchildren.
0: That's worthy work, right? Well, I guess what's interesting is, is as I've encountered this from time to time professionally, what's interesting is the matriarch or patriarch, it clearly wasn't their plan to kind of leave this mess behind. But nonetheless, they continued to happen over and over and over again. I guess in your experience, what is it that gets in the way of good intentions? Somebody that's spent an entire life trying to raise Family for siblings that would know, love, and trust one another and bequeath these assets that took a lifetime to build. What gets in the way, I guess, from a planning standpoint, that all of a sudden this dumpster fire is left behind?
1: Good phrase. Oftentimes, what gets in the way is simple aging and physical and mental issues associated with aging, such as dementia. And so, as people get older, they become more vulnerable. To others. And so, if there is an other, and it could be a neighbor, it could be a caregiver, or it could be a child who wants to take advantage of the senior. And so, sometimes you see great estate plans that are broken apart as a senior loses, say, capacity. And you see properties transferred or amendments to trust that, say, may have had an estate plan that equally split your assets between your children and maybe took care of your grandchildren. And then you see this preference off to a caregiver or to a one of your siblings who took advantage. So yeah. that's the most common occurrence.
0: The vast majority of these elder abuse cases really don't actually get discovered, right? It's a small percentage of them that actually get discovered?
1: Yeah, there's a statistic. Only about one in 44 are actually discovered.
0: Wow. So yeah. that's startling and upsetting. It uh. is. So you've written a couple of books, one of them specifically on the topic of Alzheimer's. I'm not an expert in that area, but professionally I'm starting to think through what can I do to help protect clients before they need the protection when there isn't any sort of capacity issue or diminishing capacity issues, putting the plans into place prior to needing them, right? So for custodial perspective, like we'll put trusted parties in place long before they would ever be needed. I guess from a legal perspective, and from a research perspective, as you were writing that book, what might the average person not know about Alzheimer's and not knowing whether or not you'd ever be a victim of it yourself? What would be some prudent things to do to protect your state and your heirs against creating issues or abuse issues down the road?
1: You've identified one of them. So as you see in the investment field, the identification of a trusted other. One of the problems with Alzheimer's among many problems is, first of all, it's underdiagnosed by at least 50%. The other problem is a person with dementia or Alzheimer's is not self-aware, does not know that they have it. And they, I think the doctors call it anosognosia. And you can definitely see that with people if you interview them. They are not aware (laughs) that they're not aware. And there's the problem. And so if they don't have people around them that are protecting them, they are very vulnerable. And of course, then you can end up with people that are so paranoid about it that they won't do an estate plan, or they'll make their estate plan so restrictive that it's ineffective, because they're somehow concerned that they're going to be taken advantage of.
0: Interesting. I guess, talk to me a little bit about Wolf at the Door. That's your most recent book, correct? Right. What was kind of the brainchild behind that and the inspiration to write a book? I'm always interested how you move past the idea. There's a lot of people that have the idea, I'm going to write a book, and very few that actually do.
1: The wolf at the door, that's an example that I often gave to people whose businesses were challenged. Or in the Great Recession, this one's probably greater than we are now, but in the Great Recession, as their businesses would fall apart, I'd I'd identify for them, certain protective measures that we could take, that the wolf was at the door. And sometimes I'd say, it's gone beyond the wolf sitting at the kitchen table. But when I started to think about protecting seniors and started to think about what we were doing, in fact, in trust litigation, I thought that's a fairly perfect analogy, that for a senior and elder, the wolf is kind of always at the door because of vulnerability. Even if you're an attorney who's, practicing in your 70s or 80s, whatever it is, the wolf's still at the door because, again, you don't know what you don't know, what you do know, because of simply aging, you are more vulnerable. So that was what struck me, Is but the title wasn't done, or I didn't come up with the title, honestly, until the book was done. So the other thing about how do you write a book, and you sit down and you start writing. But you don't say chapter one, you don't say introduction. I think what you do is you write about what you know, or you write about what interests you. And that might be 500 words or 700 words or a thousand words. And ultimately, you start putting it together. And The Wolf of the Door was a compilation of many things that I had written. Maybe I'd written them for a blog that we were doing, but then it was all reworked uh, later on. And it was a fun reworking process. I had a great editor and had a number of people with a lot of experience that assisted me. But I do like to share that with you, Jared, because maybe one day you'll write a book. And I would say the best thing is don't start thinking that you're writing a book yeah. write about things that interest you. You can put them aside and ultimately it can become a book.
0: I have a lot of things that interest me. So there'd have to be a lot of editing, but yeah. I, I think just inertia getting started. That's probably great advice for so many different things in life. How do you get in shape? Get started. How do you start planning? Start, you know? So a lot to be said. Up here uh, in Oregon, we've got Nike. Just do it, right? Right.
1: um, I get people calling me that have read the book from really all over the country. I had a lady call me yesterday who'd read the book and she said it was, she'd love to write a book about what occurred in her situation. And my advice is always, okay, start with the first page.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's kind of fun when you see your content influencing people from all over the place. I was shocked to find out that 40% of our listeners are from outside of the state of Oregon. So yeah, technology these days kind of creates one big marketplace, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's terrific.
0: So Mike, I guess 44 years of serving clients, you've seen all kinds of things. Are there any stories that jump out at you in terms of what does bad planning look like when you're not here anymore? What are the remnants that the heirs are left to put together? And why do families that once loved each other end up at one another's throat? How does that come to happen?
1: It comes to happen through a variety of mechanisms. One is even when people say have done good planning and they have an estate plan, they have a trust put together. If their loved ones don't know where that copy is or what lawyer did it, hmm. It happens with some frequency if you get a bad actor that these things are destroyed. And that sounds strange, but it does happen with frequency. And so the bad actor goes into a home after someone has passed away and finds an estate plan that doesn't favor them. and It's out the door. So that's one thing. And of course, the other thing is to do no estate plan at all. And then the government steps in for you, depending whatever state you're in, and defines who's going to get your estate and who isn't. The other thing that's common, or that you have a nice estate plan, but because of vulnerability, amendments continue to be made. And amendments make sense, because amendments should reflect current thinking, if that current thinking is not unduly influenced. But we see strange cases where someone, say, as to mention, I can think of one where there were 17 amendments. So that's another estate plan gone bad.
0: Yeah, interesting. Are there any particularly unique or kind of compelling cases that you've encountered in recent years?
1: We have a certain type case we see with regularity. And you probably have seen in trust a certain standard called the HEM standard, yep. health education maintenance support. Yep. So that seems logical enough to somebody who's putting their state together. And I have many of them that are a couple come to mind. I think one was $7 million that was in the HEMS. Trust, another one right now would think it's close to ten million dollars, and I've had several others and I've written a lot about this too because it I find it certainly outrageous so here you are you're a testator or a trust store you are making the trust you care about your children you put this together let's say for your children. I'm not going to talk so much about spouse bit because this usually arises later. you put it together for your children and you say, what better thing is there than to have? health education maintenance support my trustee is going to understand that okay don't bet on it because you see varieties of trustees and i can think of one right now who's an older sister so i think again there's about 10 million dollars basically in this trust and she has two siblings or half siblings that are quite a lot younger than she is and each sibling has been getting about nine hundred dollars per month, and they are in a major metropolitan area, a particular major metropolitan area where the cutoff for poverty level is at twelve thousand and below. So she's able through the hem standard to put them each into poverty around ten thousand eight hundred. Low income is considered twenty four thousand, and it goes up to actually other low income up to sixty thousand. So here you have a multi-million dollar estate with a trustee and older sister who is like, she's going to show these kids, you know, what this is about, and giving them, let's call it $10,000 a year when there's a much, much, much higher income that's coming into this trust. And so, of course, we have to get in and deal with it. Another case comes to mind, I think it was about $7 million. Again, a HEMS trust and an independent fiduciary, so in California, we have licensed independent fiduciaries, comes in and basically at the death, again, here's a father thinking he's going to take care of his children. So at death, she basically comes in and says, you're both going to have to prove to me that you're good citizens. Well, the good citizen standard's kind of tough because good citizen for one person is not the same as for another. And basically, she wouldn't release any money. And that one went to litigation and it's gone on and on. Even parents with the right intentions can, and they don't know, but either it could be a sibling or it could be somebody else, an uncle, somebody that they appoint as a trustee. And that trustee isn't necessarily going to do what they want done.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's complicated too, because you certainly don't want to tie somebody's hands. You kind of want to, as a planner, I always appreciate the value of flexibility you know, you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know what the future has in store. Right. I see your point. We've defined things so loosely that it creates the opportunity to misinterpret what the grantor was really looking to accomplish with their planning. Then that certainly is destructive.
1: It's very destructive. And then they, so that if they go off and they hire someone like me, well, we do cases on hourly fees, but most of the time in a situation like that, the people do not have money to pay an hourly fee. So we do them on contingencies. And it always strikes me in an own sense. Of course, I can't work for free. Most of us can't. And I can't pay my office expenses and people for free. So we do a contingency case. They can be lucrative, but a lot of work put into it. But it seems in some sense just unfair. Because if you just had a reasonable trustee on the other side, the person, the beneficiary wouldn't be put through this. Let me suggest one other thing that I have done in some of those cases. I think Oregon law allows for this too, but it's the creation of a unit trust. So you could take a case like that. Basically, you could do it for a few years or the lifetime of the trust, and even after the settler has died, and say why don't we provide 2% of the fair market value of the beneficiary's part of the trust to that beneficiary per year now the law says you could do it with their agreement at 2 but if you're petitioning the law says you're going to get anywhere from 3 to 5% and you could mix that with a hems trust so that this person maybe is going to get a minimum of 2% but with an additional discretion to the trust in the trustee to provide other monies for health education, maintenance support. That's something, again, I've written about, we've litigated, and I look at times for other lawyers who are doing it, and there aren't many. I'm a member of the L.A. County Bar Association. I have been for years, and they have a listserv that people post every day. And I remember when I started doing this, I post on the listserv. Has anybody done this? Basically, no. So now I've done it. I know how to do it.
0: Very interesting. So I guess when we pivot from reacting, right, as a first responder and start positioning this same conversation as kind of what can we do today? I'm personally really interested in kind of the intersection of wealth and values and trying to pass along the values that might have helped create the wealth in the first place as a planner in your involvement from an estate planning perspective over the years. Have you seen specific strategies or approaches when you're looking to not only pass along assets tax efficiently, but also kind of instill or remind the family of what the family's about and why the money matters? What role yeah. does value, values play as you're transitioning values generationally?
1: It's difficult because yeah. as an example in the HEM standard, it's people will use that to try to encourage a child to say who wants the child to be A good citizen. And again, that's so unclear as to what it is. Sometimes what you see in these things are the fact that people are making charitable contributions at the same time that they're setting aside monies for their families. That certainly sets some type of precedent that that is what mattered to the family. And I think that is a healthy approach. And I wish I had some great answers as to the value case because people will build things in. Sometimes I'll try to build things in illegally, like my child had one.
0: It's kind of an oxymoron, of my, isn't <laughs> it? <you> know, like,
1: <laughs> it's it, kind of tough. Like my my child must marry a Russian Orthodox <laughs> spouse. Okay, well that one won't quite work. But there are things like that. But the my child must be a good citizen. That's a tough one. Or my sometimes what people will build in is that the child gets some percentage of the income while they're in college, and you know, they get a little bit more if they get to a master's degree. Interesting. And certainly I, that can be a positive influence.
0: Interesting. When you think about estate planning, I always like to back up to why we're planning in the first place. Money matters for all of us, but for different reasons. There's our family, there's key relationships, there's causes within our community that we care about. There's all kinds of different stakeholders to our wealth. And there's not necessarily a right answer to how money shows up across all these categories. But getting clarity as a planner of why the money matters is, I think, an important insight as you're kind of laying out what plans might make the most sense for a client. Sometimes asset protection comes up. For me, from a behavioral psychology perspective, I know that loss aversion, we're three times more motivated by fear than we are by the opportunity for gain. So you know, after you spend a lifetime creating wealth, there's the fear of losing it through litigation or creditors and predators what role does asset protection play or what opportunity is there for asset protection as one's envisioning a, an estate plan?
1: There could be a very good role for asset protection. And over the years, the last 10 years or so, I've done quite a lot of that for people. You know, depending on the state, there are various protections that are afforded. There's a large scam industry out there convincing people that they can put whatever they have or all that they have into some kind of device, many times an offshore device that will fully protect them from any liability in the future. That's not a real good idea. For about 500 years, that's been called fraudulent transfer. (laughs) So you always have to look at that. And I do have people call me on those things. There are good ways to do estate planning that includes a lot of asset protection. For example, 401ks and IRAs for and certain pension plans afford a substantial amount of asset protection. There are other things that can be done with insurance policies, There's a, but you need to listen to what it is that the client has and what their concerns are, and do they have any existing exposures or liabilities that they're worried about, because that may affect just what you can do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, probably like an insurance policy. You can't start doing stuff after the fact.
1: Right, right. Not a good idea.
0: No. You spend a lot of time helping people kind of protect family assets, business assets. I guess philosophically, kind of how have you come to think about the role that money serves in one's life? It's this kind of complicated, emotionally charged topic. How have you started to kind of think about money when you're advising clients? Because it's this kind of, more is better, but sometimes there's a threshold where kind of more isn't always better. There's the paradox of choice. Sometimes too many options is almost overwhelming. I've seen second generations who were not maybe necessarily prepared for money inherit it, and uh, it ends up being a little bit more of a burden than one would have ever have guessed.
1: Right, which it goes to the biblical: "What if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul?" Yeah, and that certainly is worth thinking about and. So I try to talk to people, see what their own interests are. If it's all seemingly motivated by grief, that's not a good thing. Yeah. It's not a good thing for anybody, not for them, not for their family. Those are values that I think I share, family values. I've had people contact me before and because we do so much litigation. We're known for it and how to crack wrongdoing. Sometimes I have people call and say uh, they want to disinherit their children and they want to hire us because they know we have to know how to do all that. I won't do it. First of all, I don't want to delve into all their emotions. It's why they want to disinherit their children. And that really is not the way that we approach litigation. The same way of people say, I had this one too, I want to make my sister's life miserable. I want her to be upset every day. And I say, I'm not in the business of vengeance. I won't be hired for that. We try to get to justice, but justice is best served with mercy. And ultimately, for people that are in a state litigation, it doesn't matter which state you're in. The general rule is that 32 out of 33 cases will resolve prior to trial. So either settlement conferences, mediations, or informal settlements. So only 3% actually go to trial.
0: Interesting. I would have guessed more.
1: Yeah. The other thing that you couple with that statistic is the judges will say, and there's some statistical basis for this, that no matter how good your case is, you have a 30% chance of losing. And in a sense, no matter how bad your case is, you have a 30% chance of winning. And that's daunting, but it certainly helps people to get to resolution. Prior to going through a big trial.
0: Interesting. Mike, one of the questions that clients have right now is there's so much noise socially and politically right now. It's been as loud as any other time I can remember. And depending upon what TV channel you listen to, you're going to be influenced one way or the other. As we think about the estate planning law, which changed pretty significantly with the Trump Tax Act and the opportunity for maybe a change in the White House, change in the Congress. How have you approached estate planning with so much fluidity or anxiety around what potential changes could occur?
1: Well, I think you have to watch what the wise people are saying. What can you expect? And we certainly did that over the last 20 years as things changed at various times.
0: Does Hackard Law have a crystal ball?
1: Not a good one. <laughs> yeah, I think it's covered with gum.
0: <laughs> yeah. Crystal balls are tough. If you had one, it would be very, very valuable.
1: (laughs) Right. But we would watch that. It's interesting as people look at it. It's usually not done in a week. So there is some advance warning. And as that occurs, I know that there are normally commentators that are saying, okay, this is what's likely to occur. And this might be a way to protect assets, even though it's occurring.
0: Am I wrong in assuming that right now, the current fact pattern allows for maybe one of the most unprecedented wealth transfers ever? I mean, with the applicable federal rate being as low as it is, with us from a planning perspective being allowed to take minority discounting within family businesses and LLCs and the highest estate tax limit that we've ever seen previously, it seems to be a recipe, if you're proactive, that you could navigate a pending estate tax liabilities like really no other time in our recent history. Is that overstated?
1: No. It's not at all overstated, not at all overstated. And it's kind of amazing because we have done some of that where you're getting right up against, right up against the $11 million plus for an individual. But yeah, it's remarkable, remarkable.
0: Yeah, in Oregon, I mean, our estate tax kicks in at over a million dollars per person and the, the highest rate is 16%. So it's a meaningful bite and it doesn't take as much as you might expect a paid off home and in, in a retirement account You could have a taxable estate. So some of that planning here in in Oregon, not only is helpful from a federal perspective, but it isn't pulled back into your Oregon estate either. So there's that benefit as well.
1: That's a good thing.
0: Yeah, it's a great thing. Then you're left with wanting to control an asset, but at the same time, make some estate plans, but have full control. So it can create some complexity emotionally, I think, for people approaching their planning. What's a good way to kind of break that inertia? How do you start? How do you go from no zero miles per hour to, to doing something? Kind of what's the 101, 201, as you would think about planning?
1: Well, we use the whiteboard
0: a lot. Yes, the yeah. whiteboard's yeah. awesome.
1: The whiteboard is awesome. And in our conference room, as an example, we have whiteboards all along one wall and another. And we have up posters too with the law and various things like dementia standards up there. So when I meet with clients, I really like to draw because I can erase and I can show my own mistakes, but we can go through and the whiteboard is always used. I think every lawyer, I know every lawyer in our office has a whiteboard, as do many of the staff members. So the magic of the whiteboard, I always like to paint the picture. What are we looking at? I think it's so much easier if people can see things visually rather than just trying to explain them verbally. So that's a big deal for us. And it's pretty easy when you're looking at the whiteboard to draw how much money is going to be going out or where your exposure is or who could attack your plan.
0: Yeah. Well, and I've come to appreciate the simplicity sometimes of estate planning. There's really only three options. You can leave your money to the government, your heirs, or charity. That's it. There's no fourth bucket. So let's just start there. You currently have an estate plan, even though you think you don't. And right now, the government gets half and your heirs get half. Is that what you want? That's a good um, way to start it. Yeah. Is this the plan you want? And how would we change it? Well, you'd get along great with Dave Delap. Dave likes to doodle. It's like partially encrypted. You can kind of read it, but mostly you can't.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Take, you know, take, interesting thing on the whiteboard is, is more and more with Zooming now, we're starting to use, because now depositions, even trial appearances or hearing appearances can be on Zoom. So we now have a deposition room we're setting up that's got a whiteboard directly behind the lawyer's chair. So he or she can get up and draw on the whiteboard. Well, that's cool. uh,
0: Yeah. Yeah, For what it's worth, I guess we're all kind of working remotely. A tech tip would be, uh, you can actually integrate your iPad to your Zoom. There's like, An integration there. So that's kind of neat if you're whiteboard dependent like we are, to be able to share the whiteboard, so to speak, and not have to try to draw with your mouse.
1: Right. No, it's good. And I've seen that too. And I know some of the lawyers are going to utilize that as well with the stylus, with the iPad or, you know, instead of having to get up and do the whiteboard.
0: Well, Mike, you just hinted at something. And I, I think as we're kind of wrapping up our conversation today, I'd love to ask you what it's like to work with family. We haven't yet talked about that. 80 plus percent of our clients, I'd guess, have, you know, they're, they're family businesses. Your, your wife's in the office, or your child's in the office, or mom or dad might be in the office. Thanksgiving often involves people that you're going to see at the office. What are some of the enjoyable things that having a child in the office, an in-law in the office, what makes it fun for you from a legal perspective, professionally seeing people that you're going to see at Thanksgiving?
1: Well, it's fabulous. As an example, having Mark in the office. And as you know, Mark's our oldest son and I enjoy him immensely. He's super bright, super capable. He's made a lot of things that we do possible. And that's a delight. Brian, Jeremiah, who's my son-in-law, is a lawyer in the office. And we always say someday the successor when I turn 94. And, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, but it's delightful to have him too and to watch his career as it is to watch Mark's career. I, I like having family in the office. It's also a reaffirmation of values. Of course, they can see their dad or their father-in-law with all of his failings, but also maybe some of the positive things as well. Oh, for sure. And I enjoy it.
0: Are there any times that you kind of have to wear different hats and make sure that you're wearing different hats? Because sometimes a boss has to talk to a teammate differently than a father would talk to a son or an in-law. So, I mean, is there any sort of Strategy that you've found works well for you is you're kind of it's a very textured relationship that you're managing seemingly well. Any thoughts or insight to that?
1: Yeah, Mark could probably speak to it like, well, he doesn't do it all that well, but, <laughs> yeah, but, but,
0: but Mark doesn't have the microphone right now. You do, so
1: <laughs> no, I do. But at the same time, I think that the harder conversations, this is a really hard conversation, yeah, uh, is often done by John Long, who is our business manager and who has been mm-hmm. with me for. 20 years, because John can say something gently or help guide in ways that with me more of a family authoritarian figure, it just doesn't come off as well. Yeah. So I don't think I have that one down beautifully, but I love my son. I love my son-in-law and they'll always know that part. So we start with that. And when when there are more harder conversations, I can have others just assist me.
0: Yeah. So, well, awesome. And I guess kind of the, the final topic of our conversation today is: I spend the vast majority of my day talking about financial independence, retirement readiness, and what's interesting is kind of retirement's this rather modern experiment. Call it seventy or eighty years old. As a human species, it's not something that we have a long track record of. It's interesting to me that people that really find something that they love doing, all of a sudden, there's this hesitation as they approach the point where they could retire. They just really like what they're doing, and I kind of sense that from you with your when I'm 94 joke. I guess talk to me about what might I not know today, being at a spot in your career where you've been wildly successful, been doing it for 44 years, I presume that you do it because you love it. How do you kind of think about work today? And how's your perspective different today than it might have been when you were 40? Kind of how's that evolved?
1: Yeah, well, I do love it. So I start with that. It's a good part of my, my life. And of course, being married for 48 years with Lisa, she knows that this is our life we accommodate each other. This is something that I love to do. I'm sometimes surprised at how good I feel at my age and how much energy I have. And I like that. And the other thing that strikes me as a lawyer is some of our great Supreme Court justices have written many of their great decisions when they're in their certainly 70s and maybe approaching 80. And so there's so much knowledge as a lawyer that at this point, I just feel I just feel almost to be wasteful because this has been my profession. It's been my calling. It's something I love. I like to be able to share that, and that's a driving force.
0: If you got a time machine and you got to go back in time and talk to Mike Hackard at age 40, but you only got about 60 to 90 seconds with him, what would you tell Mike at age 40 that he wouldn't have known then that he knows today?
1: Uh, I'd say keep your faith up strong. Love your family. That will always count for you. Try to be a good example for them and relax a little more.
0: That's relax a little bit more. Because at 40, you're kind of in the squeeze, you're in the grind. Like you're kind of, how would that have looked different, you think, at 40? What does relax more look like?
1: Well, I think at 40, it was like I looked at every day as an opportunity for improving my my own finances, or my own position in the community. And at 70, I look at a life more of service. And of also, I have a better perspective as to what counts, what doesn't count. Your reputation, as an example, is very important for credibility. But having character that backs that reputation is more important than how others would perceive the reputation. You can see it right now in the social discourse that we have now. Various people calling, you know, the other side you'd think that is either Satan or St. Michael. You know, there's this sense of just calling people terrible things or lionizing maybe someone that shouldn't be lionized. And I'm not taking any political perspective on that, but it goes more to what really matters ultimately is that person's character.
0: Yeah, I concur. I heard a a Marine one time say that you know nine eleven was horrible, but nine twelve was amazing. He misses nine twelve. The day after that moment, yeah. there was this, there was a tragedy, but there was a unity there. And I think societally, it would be be wonderful if we could figure out. Hey, I think we probably are more aligned than we realize. We want similar outcomes. I think we're approaching the solution differently. But I, I think at the end of the day, there's a lot more similarities than differences. It just kind of weaponized right now and starts the conversation with where we're different.
1: What a good point. Imagine, we don't know what our nine twelve would be, but to have that sense again, that we're, we're one country. We care about all of us. We care about our people. We care about doing the right thing.
0: Absolutely. Well, Mike, I guess as we kind of conclude today, one thing that I thought was really notable was we're doing this recording today from your studio because you, you're so generous with the content that you're putting out creating all sorts of education and resources for people that are trying to track down answers and solutions. Would you spend just a quick second talking about kind of some of the resources that are available at Hackard Law for people that are trying to get some of these questions answered or maybe where they could track down a couple of your books?
1: Sure, exactly. Well, I start with for four and a half years and Mark initiated it, but we have had basically the studio and we put out over 600 YouTube videos. And they run anywhere from, say, a minute, probably all the way up to 10 minutes. And people from all over the country look at them, and it's YouTube, Hackard Law. The other thing that we like to do is we'll give away the books, the Wolf at the Door book and the Alzheimer's book. If people will email us at hackard at I think it's important. I'm happy to share the book. People can buy it on Amazon. If they do buy it on Amazon, hey, that's fine but i didn't really put the book together to make money and and the book at times has been number 1 on amazon for the field of elder abuse but that goes up and down but i we're, we will send books to them for free we'll pay the freight all they have to do is email me and i think at last count i know we've given away more than 3000 books because when i've spoken at various places or conferences i'll give i'll give the book away and then People, someone called yesterday, we sent two books out yesterday. So we do that with regularity.
0: Awesome. Mike, I really appreciated our conversation today. And thanks so much for uh, the wisdom, the insights, and the stories.
1: Thank you so much, Jared. I loved it. Thank you.